All right, well, hey, good morning, everybody. Good morning, happy Easter. <laughs> Ouch. Happy Easter. Hey, there we go. Good, good, good. Hey, uh, LifePoint family, welcome back. Grateful, uh, so grateful to be with you uh, this morning to celebrate uh, together. Also, just want to say this has been a, a fun season for us as a church. Um, so right now, actually, our Marion campus, they're launching right this morning. And so praise God, absolutely. I know we've got... Uh, folks who have family and friends and neighbors who have gone to be a part of that campus. And so uh, super grateful. I'll get to, at the end of service today, show you a photo of their uh, launch this morning. And just grateful again to, uh, to be celebrating that with you. Guests, if you're new here at LifePoint, this is your first time. My name's Cale. I'm the teaching pastor here. And I want to just point you to a resource that we've developed for you. We want uh, your experience here on a Sunday morning to be good, to be able to navigate the morning. So lpguest.com is a, a webpage we've developed for you. You can go there just on your smartphone by typing typing that in, uh, or you can use the smart, uh, the QR codes in front of you on the chairs in front of you. Just point your smartphone at that and it'll take you to lpguest.com. That's got the message notes for you this morning, the notes that we'll have up on the screens as we teach through this morning. Uh, that'll be there for you. Our event calendar is there, all the information that you need. And there's also a, a guest information card there. If you wouldn't mind taking a moment uh, sometime throughout our time together this morning, we would love to connect with you in person. We also understand there's a lot of traffic coming in and out of our facility. And so if we don't get a chance to connect with you in person. That's a great way to connect digitally is just taking a moment and filling that out. If you have a, a Bible with you, uh, we're going to be in John 1 this morning, which um, if you're new to Christianity, new to the faith, new to the Bible, you're like, great, John 1. If you are a believer in Christ, you may be wondering if you're familiar with the scriptures, like, why John 1? And so let me just give you a little heads up on where we're headed this morning. So um, John, the Apostle John wrote the Gospel of John, and in John 1, he records some words from another John, uh, I know it gets confusing, but John the Baptist, and John the Baptist was related to Jesus and uh, came right before Jesus, really telling the people of Israel, his job was to prepare the way. And so he tells the people of Israel, right, prepare your hearts. The Messiah is coming. Jesus is coming. You need to get ready. And, and as we go through this, what we're going to do is we're going to use John 1 as sort of a launching point and some of the words he says there, one particular phrase, as a launching point for exploring what is the meaning of the crucifixion and the resurrection. And you really cannot separate those two. I know you come in Easter Sunday, you're like, hey, we're celebrating the resurrection. Absolutely. But you, cannot sell, you can't separate that from the crucifixion. Friday and Sunday form a unit. And so we're going to talk a lot about the crucifixion this morning and the meaning of, hey, what does it mean that a guy died on a cross 2,000 years ago? What, uh, I read an article this week that said, have we ever really thought about that? That, I mean, we as Christians, more than a billion people over right now and billions more throughout the course of history, the most famous image in all of history is a man being executed, hanging in shame on a cross. Like, Why? Isn't that, it seems kind of weird almost. Like, why do we celebrate that? Unless there's something going on there of cosmic, eternal significance. We believe there is. And so we're going to use what John the Baptist says here to sort of explore, okay, what's the meaning of that? Why does it matter that Jesus rose again? And if you're here this morning and you're a believer in Christ, here's my hope for you, is that as we gather this morning, um, you'll have a deeper, by the end of the morning, you'll have a deeper appreciation, a deeper understanding of what it is that Jesus has done for you at the cross, what it is the Father has done for you in sending Jesus to you. And you'll be able to not just take that away today, but it'll impact the way you approach tomorrow and the day after and the day after. As one pastor puts it, we, we really never progress past the gospel. We just go deeper into it. 
And so I hope this morning that's what happens for you. If you're here today and, and you're not a believer, maybe somebody uh, drug you here, right? Maybe you, someone invited you and you wanted to come. Maybe God's just been drawing you and you're like, I, I need to be at church this morning. Look, I, it doesn't matter the reason that you're here. What matters is that you're here. And I believe that that's God's activity in your life. There are a million reasons that you shouldn't be here, and yet you are. And I believe that the Lord's brought you here. And so my hope for you is if you're here today and you're not a Christian, or maybe, maybe you would say, I'm not a Christian, but I'm spiritual, or, relig- or, or maybe you wouldn't say that at all, like I'm not even spiritual, but, but maybe, just maybe you're here this morning and what you know, you're like, I don't know about any of all this, but what I know is something's wrong. Like there's something inside of me and maybe you would call it brokenness or maybe you'd even use the word sin, like I've done wrong. And, and you maybe think, okay, if there is a God, like I know that what I know is I'm not right with him. And despite the fact that culture tells me and everyone around me saying, hey, if you just live an authentic life and you're true to yourself, then you'll be fine. And you're like, I'm doing that. And yet I'm not fine. I don't feel right. Something's wrong. And maybe you're wondering and asking the question, like, does Jesus offer something to fix this? Is there, is there a way to be made right? Is there a way for the broken pieces of my life to be put back together? Because I'm trying and I've made a mess of it. And I'm wondering, is there a different way to live? And the answer to that question, those questions, is a resounding Yes, there is a different way. His name is Jesus. And I hope you'll pay close attention as we walk through this this morning. So John chapter one, um, I love verse 26. So John the Baptist is telling everyone, get ready because he's coming. The one we've all been waiting for. And the Jewish people eventually kind of look at John and they're like, are you the Messiah, right? I mean, like, are you the guy? Because you got a big ministry and everybody's coming out to you and they listen to you. And John's humility is something every Christian should emulate. This is what he says. Verse 26, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. (laughs) They look at John, they're like, you seem really important. You got a lot of people listening to you. Are you him? And he's like, no. (laughs) The real, I mean, the guy that we're all waiting for, Jesus, it's all about him and I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. And he goes on in verse 29 and says this, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, tells everyone, look, see, that's what I mean, see, behold, look at him. And then he says this, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That phrase has been stuck in my head like all week, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And let's just pause there and sort of parse that out for a second. So like, Why does he say that? Why the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? To be honest, if you kind of look at it, I mean, there's there's a a million other things he could have said in that moment. Behold, the Savior. Behold, the one we've all been waiting for. Behold, the King. Behold, the Son of God. And instead, he's like, behold, everybody look. Everyone looks. The Lamb of God. Like, that's kind of weird. And you know what? 
John's kind of weird. So, so John, right? John, if you know John the Baptist at all, it says that he lived out in the wilderness alone. He intentionally fashions himself after an Old Testament prophet. He wears camel's hair for his cloak and he eats uh, locusts and wild honey for his diet. So he's got this like all natural diet thing going on long before that's popular. And, and John's just out there telling people, right, repent. And he's kind of odd. But what he says here. Though it may sound odd to you and me, it's not odd. It's not weird. In fact, it's incredibly intentional on John's part, on the Spirit's part. What he says here connects and resonates so deeply with the people that are listening because the Lamb of God, that theme runs through the entire Bible. We just sang about it a second ago, all the way at Revelation when the saints, when people are gathered around God's throne and they're singing, the world's ended, right? It's over and now we're in heaven. It's worthy as the Lamb who was slain. But that goes all the way back to the very beginning. That theme runs all the way back to the very beginning of Israel's history to this guy named Abraham. And God promised this guy Abraham he was going to have a son. And Isaac came. And then when Isaac was born, after he was born, he lived for some time. God's like, hey, I want you to sacrifice your son Isaac. Which you're like, why would God do that? God has a purpose for what he's doing. And so Abraham takes him to a mountain. He's about to sacrifice him. And at the last moment, God's like, no, 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 no. It was basically a test of Abraham's heart. Was he going to love his son more than he was going to love the Lord? And he doesn't. And God says, turn around, look. And Isaac and Abraham look. And there's a ram caught in a bush this lamb that he says, this is a sacrifice in the boy's place. And then you go to the story of Moses and the Exodus. This is probably the most pivotal moment, the most shaping moment in Israel's history where God uh, judges the nation and the sin of Egypt and he delivers the people uh, through Moses. And the final plague is the taking of the firstborn. And it, as God comes in judgment against the, against the nation, he tells all the people of Israel, he says, look, as the angel of death comes, you go and you find a lamb. And again, I know this sounds odd to our modern ears, right? So stick with me. He's like, take a lamb without blemish, has to be perfect, no spot, no defect. You take that perfect lamb and you sacrifice it in your place and you take the blood of the lamb and you put it over the doorposts of your home. And anyone who has the blood of the lamb covering their home says the judgment passes over you. You're saved. The people are saved and the angel of death passes over them because they're covered by the blood of the lamb. That's what starts the Jewish festival of Passover. And Braden talked about this last week when we began sort of the study of Holy Week. It is no accident that on the weekend that Jesus is murdered, crucified and resurrected, it coincides, it's the Jewish festival of Passover. That is not an accident. That is the Lord intentionally, the Lord of all history intentionally saying, my son is dying as the ultimate Passover lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So not only that, but you go through, so if you've ever read through like Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and you're like, hey, I'll just get lost with all the sacrifice and they're just sacrificing animals left and right. The whole entire Old Testament system, that's what it would happen is they would bring an animal, oftentimes a lamb, and it would be a perfect without defect lamb, spotless, no blemish. And, and I, again, I know this sounds odd, but the idea here was that a person would literally come and they would place their hand on the lamb's head and symbolically what was happening, they're like, Lord, I know that I've sinned against you. I know my family has sinned against you. I know we've rebelled against you as a people, but Lord, my sin is being placed on this animal. And this animal, I know the wages of sin is death, but this animal's dying in my place. 
It's being sacrificed in my place. And so the priest would then atone for, that was the word, atone for the sin of the people through those, the sacrifice of those animals. So think about this, right? You got a thousand years of that. That's way, way longer than we've even been a country, right? A nation here. The people of Israel have been doing this for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. That lamb, the lamb theme, lamb being sacrificed in their place. And then Jesus comes and John's like, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What's hap- so when we ask the question, like what's happening at the cross? Why is a man dying on a tree? Why do we celebrate that? What does it have to do with my life? John's telling us right here. He's the Lamb of God who takes away our sin and in its place gives us his righteousness. So the Apostle Paul talking to a church at a place called Corinth. And they're not Jewish, so they don't have a background here. And they're learning, like, what's this whole Jesus thing about? He tells it to him this way. First Corinthians, or Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul says this, for our sake, for your sake, for my sake, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. He there is God, him is Jesus. So it reads this way, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, Jesus, who was spotless, no blemish, perfect life, became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Theologians, pastors, Braden said it last week, sometimes we'll call it this, the great exchange. That Christianity is really about this great exchange where Jesus is saying, hey, I'm taking all of your brokenness, all of your sin, all of your rebellion against the holy God of the universe on myself at the cross. And I'm giving you in in its place, by grace through faith, my righteousness. And there are two parts to this sort of great exchange, right? So, So how does this work? Like, how does Jesus actually do that? Two things. One, he's sinless and perfect. The lamb had to be without blemish, without spot. Let me just explain why that's important, okay? Jesus is not, sometimes contrary to popular opinion, I think sometimes people, if you're not a believer, you're like, man, Jesus was a good person, but what's the big deal? Jesus did not claim to be a good person. His disciples didn't claim. He's a good teacher, way more than that. They claimed that he was the son of God. Jesus, the scriptures teach he was sinless and perfect. So to say it this way, never vented his anger at anyone unrighteously never talked behind someone's back, never lost his temper in traffic, right? Never dishonored his parents, never lied, never stole, always showed compassion and mercy when it was called for, patience when it was needed. He served others completely, loved others perfectly, and was completely just and righteous in all of his judgments, always in his words, in his thoughts, in his actions, perfect obedience to the Father. If I could say it to you this way, he did all the things that we know we should do, but we can't do, and we don't do because of our sin, and he did none of the things that we, that we know we shouldn't do, but we do anyway because of our sinful heart. Jesus was the perfect lamb in our place. And that's so crucial. I think sometimes we're like, oh, he's just a good person, Jewish version of Buddha, right? Leading us to enlightenment. No, he's a sinless, the son of God in your place and in mine. And you're like, why is it important that he's sinless? Think about it this way. If you're gonna clean something that's dirty, 
table's dirty, right? So I got four young kids. After the dinner, like it's just a mess. And if you're gonna go clean the table, you don't grab something that's dirty. You don't grab a dirty rag and let's clean up the dirty table with the dirty rag. And unless you have small children, then you know that's exactly how that works, right? Like, dad, look, I'm cleaning. And you're like, is, is, that, the, is that the rag with the spaghetti sauce, buddy? Yeah, look, right, it's helping. And you're like, thank you, right? Well done, and we'll clean it up later. But you know, if you really wanna clean the table, what do you do? You grab a clean rag, something that's clean, and you wash away the dirtiness and the filth. And the way the filthy thing becomes clean is because the clean thing became filthy. The rags, I'm taking right, the dirtiness on myself. That's what Jesus is doing here. Jesus says, man, my life is spotless, perfect, and I'm becoming sin in your place so that you might become the righteousness of God that you might have his cleanness as he takes you and I's uncleanness on himself. He's not just sinless though, we've said it already. He's also a substitute. That's really, really important, okay? What does a substitute do? If you're a teacher, you know this. You're like, I know what a substitute. Substitute, right, takes my place. When I can't be there, the substitute takes my place. What Jesus is doing at the cross, when we think about this, this is really important. I think sometimes people are like, that's really cool. Again, what relevance does it have for me? I've even had someone ask me, they're like, I just don't understand how a guy dying, like, I get that like, God says he loved you so much. Look, he died for you. But in their mind, they're like, it's basically like me coming to you going, hey, I love you a lot. Let me show how, how much I love you. I'm gonna walk out in the street and get hit by a bus. And they're like, thanks, but like, get out of the road, right? You know, like, that, I, I appreciate the devotion, but why would you do that? Here's the difference. If you're standing in front of the bus and it's coming for you, okay, if, if you're over here on the road watching in no danger and someone's like, I'm gonna go rush in front of the bus for you, you're like, thanks, but no thanks. But if you're in the road and the bus is coming for you and someone comes in and pushes you out of the way and says, I'm gonna take the bus for you, that's a really different thing. And the scriptures teach, we'll come back to this in a moment, that man, the, the bus of God's anger against sin is, is coming. God cares. He doesn't sit up in heaven like, I don't really care what people do. He cares. And Jesus is our substitute at the cross. When we ask, like, Jesus says it's finished. What is he finishing? Jesus at the cross is like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's happening? Why is God? Here's what's happening. Jesus is saying, look, I know that you're a sinner. I know that I'm a sinner. The father says, I know, I see your sin. And God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And Jesus gives his life and goes to the cross and says, I'm taking the wrath of God against sin on myself. God pointed at me, not at them. I'm gonna go and I'm gonna become sin for you. And the father turns his face away from the son. And what's happening there is that they'd enjoyed perfect relationship from all eternity. And then at the cross, the only moment there at the cross, the father turns his face away and the relationship, right? They're separated. One pastor puts it this way, I love it. He says, Jesus literally experienced hell so you and I could have heaven. He takes on the punishment against sin. He takes on separation from the father so that you and I could be united to the father. He's the sinless substitute, the lamb of God who takes away the sin 
of the world. Now, let me pause there for a moment because I know as I talk about like the wrath of God against sin and his righteous anger, I mean, even Christians, right? We don't even like talking about this, let alone if you're not a believer. And maybe that's why you're like, I, you know, God being angry at sin and like, I really, Kale? Like, can we just leave behind the antiquated ideas of the wrath of God and the anger of God against sin and move on to more modern, like, hey, we'll celebrate Jesus as a good person and a good example. We'll clap, he's alive, great, we move on. Here's the problem with that. Like, you can do that if you want. The problem is you rip all the meaning of the cross and the resurrection out from underneath it. So, so let's pause there for a moment and just talk about that. So if you're here and you're like, I don't really like the idea of God being angry at sin. Let me ask you to consider what the alternatives are, okay? You're basically left with God doesn't exist or he does, he just doesn't care. Because let me ask you, when you look around at the world right now, around you, does everything appear to be okay? I mean, gosh, just this week, watching some of the pictures and stories coming out of Ukraine, something inside of us looks that I hope, and we're like, that's not okay. Like, Lord, that's not okay. Like, that grieves my heart. That's not okay. Children not having their homes. Par parents and families being ripped from each other. People dying. Like, that's not okay. Lord, I want you to do, like, act, intervene. And of course, we could debate, like, well, why doesn't God intervene in this way? Why doesn't he do it this way? But if you're really saying, I don't like the idea of God being ever angry at sin, then you're left with, God doesn't exist, and there's really no reason for you to be upset about this. Or you're left with, yeah, he sees, he just doesn't care. He basically gives a cosmic shoulder shrug and says, yeah, I see it. I see evil. I see all the wickedness. But man, I mean, I'm the indulgent grandfather who just showers candy on everyone and I don't really do anything about sin or brokenness. Can I just ask you to consider that and say, do you really want that? No, like I don't think you do, I don't think I do. For there to be a God of love and mercy and compassion, there also has to be a God of justice and righteousness who cares deeply about sin. Now here's where it gets hard, right? If we're honest, we look around the world and we're like, oh God, I, I want you to care about sin because I see the evil out there. The problem is we also, if we're honest with ourselves, see the evil in here. So I, if you're not from LifePoint, you wouldn't get this, but I asked a couple of months ago, um, I told our folks, I said, hey, imagine if, um, would you be comfortable if on the screens right now, we're just playing all of your thoughts from the last week, just rolling on the screens, right? Anybody cool with that? Nope, right? <clears throat> I'm not. Like if, you, if on the screens right now, we're just running every thought you've had over the entire last week. What, like it's not just, oh, people like, see I'm weird. It's also, man, there's some nastiness in there. <laughs> like if you're honest with yourself and I'm honest with myself, it's like not every thought that comes out of my mind is pure and righteous and good. There's some anger or some bitterness or some selfishness or some pride, some rebellion against the God of the universe. It's not all good. And so you can cling if you want to, to this idea. I mean, everybody's just really good at their hearts and society maybe like screws a few people up. But I just don't think that fits the evidence of what we see. I think what we see out there, and if we're honest with ourselves, what we see in here is there is a deep brokenness. And there is, it's flawed. And the scriptures say, no, no, it's sin a rebellion against God that says, God, I don't want to surrender and submit and say, Lord, Lord, here's my life, your way. This deep thing in us that wants to say, no, no, my way. 
And so that's where it leads us to this place where we're going, man, I, like we need a God who's merciful and kind. We also need a God who's just, who cares about righteousness and, and deals with sin. But God, could you not deal with my sin, right? Could you punish everybody else, but just not my sin? But here's where, here's where this meets. This is what makes the cross so beautiful. The cross is where justice and mercy meet. The cross is where the justice of God against sin, the amount he cares, his goodness and righteousness is on full display and his mercy and his kindness. So how does that work? Well, at the cross, God is saying to you and to me, look, I love you. And I placed my son here and Jesus for the joy set before him endured this for you and for me that we might be saved mercy, forgiveness. Yeah, but where's the justice, right? People just get off scot-free? No. <laughs> Think about this. Sometimes I walk people through this. I say, what's the worst thing that could happen to you? Like the highest price you could pay for your wrongdoing. Look back at all the thoughts, all the actions, all the words you've ever spoken to other people that you're like, oh, I just so wish I could have that back. I so regret that moment. What's the highest penalty, the biggest punishment that you could pay? Somebody could take your life. They kill you. Jesus already did that. When you come to trust Jesus, you're united with him and you're saying, man, there's no more debt to be paid. Well, Lord, aren't you still angry at my sin? No, it was all poured out on Jesus. You look at someone else, you're like, yeah, but they did this. It's been paid for by Jesus. It has, God's like, aren't you angry about that God? Yes, it's been paid for by Christ. And so really it's one of two things. Either you remain in your sin and you have to face the God of the universe, the just God of the universe at the end of your days or when he returns, or you unite yourself to Christ and you receive the mercy and forgiveness of God poured out for you at the cross. Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, your sin on his shoulders. Now, I would imagine at this moment, right, you said the cross is where justice and mercy meet. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for what you did for me. And then you might go, hey, isn't it Easter? Aren't we talking about the resurrection, <laughs> right? Like Jesus is alive. How does that fit into here? So let's, let's close with this. None of this matters if Jesus is still dead. None of it matters. All of this, everything we just said hinges on the resurrection. This is how the Apostle Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There were some people at Corinth who began to start questioning. They're like, hey, I don't know that God actually raises people from the dead. And Paul's like, look, if that's the case, if God doesn't raise people from the dead, then Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. And if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, this is how he puts it. Verse 14, he says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. He goes on in verse 17 and says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. He's like, man, if you were a believer and then you died, we would say, well, you got the hope of eternal life. He's like, no, <laughs> not if Jesus is dead. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Just think about what Paul says there. He's like, look, if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, honestly, we can stop doing this whole charade, right? Like, I, we can, I love you all, but we don't have to gather here on Sundays. Go buy a boat, do something else, right? Go sailing. Like, it, it, Paul's like, there's no point. If Jesus is still dead, then none of this is true. But then he goes in verse 20 and says, no, no, no. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
which means, right, he was the first and you and I will be next, raised from the grave to new life. So here's how I put it, right? The, the, the resurrection validates the crucifixion. The resurrection validates the crucifixion. If you're wondering right now, like, Kale, how do I really know that Jesus paid for all my sin? The empty tomb. Yeah, but how do I know that he's like the son of God? The empty tomb. Yeah, but how do I know that what he said, he really is who he says he is and he really can't like give me new, the empty tomb. Because Jesus repeatedly during his ministry said, this is what I'm gonna do at the cross. This is what it is. And then on the third day, I'm gonna rise from the grave. And he showed the women came first, right? Ladies, it was you first who came and Jesus like, here I am. And then the disciples, and then Jesus appeared to more than 500 people. And for the rest of their lives, the whole first century of Christianity is those early disciples going out telling everyone, we saw him. <laughs> like he really rose from the grave, which means he is who he says he is. And what he did at the cross was enough. He's the lamb of God who takes away our sin. And so can I just say like, <clears throat> sometimes Sometimes people talk with me and they'll be like, you know, I know like God forgives me, but I just can't, I just can't forgive myself. And I hear that and I think, look, I know that like sounds spiritual and like, you know, right, you're like, oh, I can't forgive. You don't have the authority to forgive yourself. God does. And, and you didn't sin against you ultimately. You're not the highest authority. God is, you sinned against him. And the God of the universe through the life, death and resurrection of Jesus has said, it's finished. You're forgiven accept it, receive it. The resurrection proves it. Jesus was dead and is alive. And you're free if you'll trust him, if you'll turn from your sin and trust him with your life. He's alive and you can be alive too. And some of us are here wondering, right? <clears throat> um, Kale, you don't know my life, a lot of brokenness, some things done to me, some things I've done. Here's the reality. I don't know. What I do know is that I've been doing this 10 years and I've heard a lot of messed up stuff. <laughs> and I've seen people and talked with people who have a really broken life. And if we're honest, all of us are really broken. Doesn't matter the circumstance of your life, there's brokenness. And also, I've seen Jesus bring people to new life. Myself, in my family, in this church family. There's some people with some really, really hard stories and some really great stories of the redemption of Jesus. And so if you're here this morning wondering, can God put it back together? Could I really have a fresh start? Could I really have new life in Christ? Man, the answer is yes, in Jesus Christ. He's alive and you too can live. It's like, so springtime, right now, you walk outside. I want you to remember this the rest of the day. Drive around, look at the flowering trees. Spring has become my favorite season because it's almost like God has reminded us, woven a reminder of the resurrection into the creation itself. Stuff that was dead and gray for a long time. It's Ohio, winter's long, right? Stuff that was dead and gray for a long time and seems hopeless. By about March, you're like, I don't know if I can make it. And then all of a sudden, right? Stuff that seems dead springs back to new life. Jesus was dead in the tomb, seemed hopeless. And on the third day, God raised him to new life. And Jesus says, because I live, you too can live. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for all of us who are believers in the room right now. Oh God, will you give us a greater understanding of what you've done for us at the cross? 
Even in the church, Lord, we don't always like talking about your anger against sin, the fact that you're a righteous God and a just God. But Father, your mercy and your compassion and your love for us lose their meaning when we don't understand that Jesus, you're the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. God, will you remind us that we're broken apart from you? Will you help us to embrace the reality that we're sinners saved by grace? And God, may it result not in any sort of condemnation, but celebration. Oh, Jesus has set me free. I am washed clean. Jesus paid it all and all to him I owe. For sin had left a crimson stain and he washed it white as snow. And as we just stay in that spirit of prayer, I wanna talk directly to those of us, right? Nobody's looking at you, nobody's gonna point you out. But if you're here today and you've never taken that step to trust Jesus with your life, and you walked in here and you say, I I did not have a relationship with God when I walked in here, you don't have to leave that way. Following Jesus is lifelong, but starting the process, saying yes to Him can happen in a moment. So if you've heard the gospel today and you understand God's been working in your life and you say, I'm a sinner in need of a savior. I'm gonna invite you to pray with me right now, if you're ready. And these aren't magic words. It is the expression of your heart to say yes to Jesus. And pray with me, Heavenly Father, I know that I'm a sinner deeply in need of a savior. And two words, repentance and faith. Repentance means I turn away from my sin. God, I'm turning away from it this morning. I'm not justifying it or rationalizing it. I'm saying it's there and I'm sorry. And faith, I'm believing that what you did, Jesus, at the cross was enough for me. And my slate is wiped clean by the blood of the lamb shed for me. And this morning, right now, 1025 in the morning here on Resurrection Sunday, I give my life to you, Jesus, for the rest of my days and all eternity. Thank you for saving me. God, we love you and we thank you for what you've done for us and ultimately for who you are. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.